Coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. That by raising my fat, I dramatically feel better. And if you actually look at the nutritional research, when we get someone's, if you take someone's fat in their diet from 20% to 40%, you can almost double free testosterone or not free total testosterone. You can almost double total testosterone if it's relatively low, but you can definitely increase it. And you can see this all the time, but there isn't much of an increase after 40%. There isn't much of an increase in testosterone. So when I'm doing nutritional protocols on males and females, females definitely have more of a carb sparing metabolism. They actually generally do a little bit better on fat. So I will definitely make sure I always have a female's fat set at 40%, always. And then if it's a male, I will generally start their fat at 40% as well. But I don't generally take it above that because um, we don't just, you just generally don't need that much more than that. So that entire experience was 100% like, percent a learning experience that, wow, like nutrition makes an enormous difference in how I feel almost immediately. It can either just completely wreck me or I feel superhuman. But it is, it is a manipulable variable that does make a big difference. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed former national champion weightlifter and functional nutrition practitioner, Matt Terry. We discussed his story of battling obesity, becoming a weightlifting national champion, along with the importance of eating fat, cholesterol's role in health, building muscle and losing fat, how to use fasting as a tool, and his one tip to get your body back to what it once was. This was an awesome interview with Matt. I apologize for my voice. I think you'll get a ton of great tips. And thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the interview. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin. And I have Matt Terry on with Matt Terry Fitness. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for coming on, Matt. I actually met Matt Terry through uh, Upgraded Formulas. I got a hair mineral test and Matt was the consultant that helped take a look at my levels. And we'll, we'll get into that today. I think it'll be interesting to observe uh, some, of the, some of the things that came from that test. Uh, but before we get into all that, Matt, why don't you tell the audience maybe a little bit about your background and I know you're Olympic lifting and, and, um, 2001, I'll brag for you, 2001 national champion. <laughs> I read there Is that right. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So my background, I was a really overweight, sick child and most of my family is that's left anyway. And so it just kind of became a natural transition to try to just lose weight. So that's how I got to fitness. My parents got me up my first personal trainer. I think it was like 13 or 14. And that's actually when I was training for my first powerlifting tournament. So even though I was really overweight, I was also just really genetically gifted with strength training. And I was really strong just for my age and in general. So uh, my parents really kind of helped me kind of, uh, oh, I think grow that. And I, and I found I was really good at it. And I really enjoyed it and had to lose weight. And so it kind of started the whole thing. And I, I played football and I was just a really good athlete generally, even though I was really overweight. And then so as I started off in the process of just kind of learning more and wanting to help people, um, I became a dietitian. And I got my, my one of my degrees is in strength training and others in nutrition. Um, and then as I kind of moved through the process, as you mentioned, yeah, I was an Olympic lifter. Um, I won, I don't know, I had several national championships for the U.S. I won the Olympic team trials in 2000. Um, I lived at Olympic Training Center for like six years. So lifting was my job. That's all I did. Um, and then as I got out of that, I played college football. And when I graduated, I kind of got into the health space and I've just been there for the last 22 years. And really it's kind of shifted more. Like when you were talking about lab evaluations is, um, I got my functional medicine license several years ago after I was kind of diagnosed with cancer. 
So it's kind of been this process of me kind of fixing myself, fixing other people, working on my current clients. I want a personal training studio as well. So this kind of just is this is really just this entire process is just kind of how I live and what I work with every day. Yeah. Well, and I know you mentioned it really fast is uh, you, you got diagnosed with cancer. What kind? Kidney. So it's, it's renal cell carcinoma. So it's on my right kidney. Okay. And, and that's something that ha- has it gotten better over the years or? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I do active, what's called active surveillance. So I get it monitored constantly and imaging. Um, so I, I found it in 2015 after my last bodybuilding show. Um, which was the ketogenic diet experiment, which I joke about, um, which ruptured my appendix and I almost lost my gallbladder. But luckily, um, the ketogenic, ketogenic diet, I always joke, saved my life because that's what they call my tumors. So um, mm. they wouldn't have found them otherwise. So no, it's fine. Everything, everything's fine. Um, I was just going through it. And like I said, um, I do a lot of my own labs, monitor everything and everything makes the praise God. Everything's good. So it's just something to deal with. Okay. And <clears throat> regarding, um, you know, your days of a weightlifter, Olympic weightlifter, mm-hmm. What did you learn from that? I mean, building muscle is one thing, but becoming a, um, a weightlifting champion <laughs> is another yeah, thing. Yeah. And when you're eating and breathing this stuff, I mean, what, what did you learn from that experience that sort of you've taken on past those years? I think, uh, you know, really the craziest thing with the whole Olympic experience is, you know, you train two to three times a day, which is all you do is you lift, you, you lift, you eat, you sleep, it's all you do. And so since I didn't have really anything else to do is when I started dietitian school. So I would track my intake every day. I would do everything. So I had all this free time and that's how I really got involved in kind of like exercise science and the nutritional philosophy behind it. So really what the whole lifting thing really taught me um, is at the time I didn't realize how hard it was and I just didn't realize how stressful it was. And I didn't realize how big of a, not a big of a deal in terms of opportunity, but just like the pressure and the stress. You just don't realize that when you're that young. And I, I kind of, I remember when I got out of it and I remember thinking like, and even still to this day, it's probably the hardest thing I've ever done. And so really everything else has been pretty easy since then. And I think the amount of work ethic and everything it stills in you, um, I think easily transfers over other things. But I've, I've distinctly remember several times thinking like, and everything has like been so easy compared to what I had to go through to do that. Like, so I think it just prepared you for life, to be honest, you know, kind of a trial by fire, like a little, little ritual there. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been awesome. Yeah. And, and how old were you when you competed? Like, what, what was the age range? I'm just curious. So I started when I was 16. Well, actually, I started when I was 15. And I moved to Olympic training when I was 16. And I left when I was 22. Um, so I lived there off and on for about six or seven years. And um, so I started pretty young and I retired pretty early. And just, you know, injuries, like when you're training that level, you're always hurt. There's always something wrong. I've had knee surgery. I've had blown discs. I have wrist problems. I had shoulder issues. And luckily, since then, I mean, everything has been fine. But I mean, you know, when you're going through that level at that, you know, at that, you know, kind of intensity, everything's always broken. And so I just, by the time I was like 22, 20, you know, I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm good. You know, and then I, I did something which is stupid. Then I played football. I played college football backward. That's when I played college football. Oh. So um, I, I went for something to do because I was really good in high school and I had a short window at the Olympic route. So I was like, well, I need to make sure this, you know, I feel this, see this through while I can. And then once I was done there, that's when I played football, which is kind of funny because I always did backwards. So, but yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely taught me a lot of hard work and dedication. Yeah. So you started playing college football when you were like 22. Yeah. When I was older. <laughs> yeah. It was funny. That probably helped a little bit to be on the older side. You know, going up. A ton. Yeah. Oh yeah. I did a ton. Cause I'm only five, six. So I, I played, like high division two and those guys were big. Yeah. You know, so I was like, I was a running back and I was like five, six, I, oh I think I played around two twenty was what I played. But you know, I mean, we have guys who are our defensive ends were six, five, three twenty and they're big dudes. 
So, I mean, that was the only way I could even stay competitive in that division was I was just, I had to be strong. I could, as far as I possibly could. So it really did help me carry into that really, really well. Wow. And so then you got out of uh, school, you played four years of football? Two and a half. Cause that was when I was all, all the eligible they had left. Okay. Gotcha. And, um, and then you, you, did you start your own studio then? From there so actually i was always managing large fitness companies so i used to manage lifetime and just some other big ones and after that i just got really burnt out because it really is just about money it's not about helping people at all so then i um met my current partner and then we um he'd opened the studio and i came in with him later and we've had our studio now for going on 12 years oh great uh and so now uh we met through lab testing so i thought we'd talk mm-hmm. quite a bit about that um cool what well let's talk about lab new testing lab testing and also nutrition. I wanted to ask you, how, how did, how did you, you know, you were Olympic lifter going into just the normal regular life. What what have you Mm -hmm. learned from, from, uh, all your nutrition days of, of, I'm sure when you were Olympic lifter, it was just, Mm -hmm. everything was so calculated and, uh, to, to now what you do today. Well, I think the first thing to understand about nutrition is the more you study nutrition, the more confusing it gets. But when you actually understand nutritional biochemistry, which is what my background is, it's not confusing at all. And I think the important thing to understand is people get really off in tangents that carbs make you fat, this and that, and none of it actually does. And when you actually understand that metabolism has one thing in common, when you understand human metabolism is that all three macros, their molecular structures are based on a carbon skeleton. Okay. And so several carbons are interconnected form a carbon chain. And so, for example, like carbohydrates are the most basic form. And so they're going to have C2HO2, but they're still carbon, you know, bonded, right? And just like protein has a carbon and a carbolic bond on the right side. And fatty acids have a carboxyl group on the right side. So knowing that all three macronutrients have carbon chains is crucial to understanding the principle of nutrition. And that means that the body can oxidize or burn any of the carbon chains from each one into each other. And the, basically the breakdown products are metabolites of carbohydrates, protein, and fat can be transferred into each other. Okay. So this connects metabolic pathways, allows the body to transform like one nutrient into another, just like basically such a storing carbs. And, and when you're in a fat and energy surplus and then, or making glucose out of carbon skeletons and amino acids when there's no glucose available. So when you actually understand this, it makes nutrition really easy. So when I'm working with clients, and this is what I did my own nutritional training, and I still compete in bodybuilding. This is how I do my training now, or my nutrition now. I always set calories based off several factors. I then set protein. I then set fat. And I set carbohydrates last. I've always done that, and it has always worked well. And then depending on what someone's goals are, you will see, this is one thing I actually learned in my training. I, I was, when you first started as a dietitian, they will sometimes press into your head that fats are really bad for you. So I was on a very low fat diet when I was training, like less than 20 grams of fat a day. And if you actually look at that, you will develop so many hormonal imbalances when your fat's that low. And I remember I would be on like 700 grams of carbs a day because I tracked everything. And I would just be exhausted. I'm like, how am I so tired when I'm eating so many carbohydrates? And I had an awesome exercise physiology professor who was also a natural bodybuilder and had to do dietary records. And the first day he brought it in, he was like, okay, so you need to eat some fat and you need to cut your carbohydrates back. And I was like, no way, man, fat makes you fat. He was like, I'm telling you, <laughs> if you take your fat up to about 70, 80 grams a day and cut your carbs in half, he goes, your calories will adjust. He's like, you will be fine. And I was like, okay. And I remember doing it and I actually did it accidentally. I didn't purposely try to raise my fat. It was funny. It was basically like at the training center, they would make your food to order and the, the new cook totally screwed my food up. And I asked for 10 egg whites and she made me 10 whole eggs. Wow. And I had to go to school and I was like, I don't have time to eat something different. So I have to eat this now. And I remember I ate it. And I remember saying like, I remember in class, I was like, 
feel really good. Like really good. Like what's going on? Like I'm in my, I was just like alert and I was like excited. And I was like, my energy's through the roof. This is weird. Anyway, I was like, well, something's to this. So I kept the fat up in my diet. Like my, and my uh, teacher had told me to, and man, my strength levels exploded. And I was like, oh, so there's something is to nutrition. And it really is. And if you look at the research, if your fat's that low, you're going to take the testosterone. That's what I had done to myself. So really, where I'm looking for is I'll set. I can you say that slower? Can you say that slower one more time? Yeah. <laughs> when so fat's in that terms low, of, you're going to tank your testosterone. Oh, yeah. yeah. You're going to tank your testosterone. Tank your testosterone. And if you're a woman, you're going to tank your estrogen and progesterone. Not to mention your testosterone is very low anyway. But I definitely learned that by raising my fat, I dramatically felt better. And if you actually look at the nutritional research, when we get someone's, if you take someone's fat in their diet from 20% to 40%, you can almost double free testosterone or not free total testosterone. You can almost double total testosterone if it's relatively low, but you can definitely increase it. And you can see this all the time, but there isn't much of an increase after 40%. There isn't much of an increase in testosterone. So when I'm doing nutritional protocols on males and females, Females definitely have more of a carb sparing metabolism. They actually generally do a little bit better on fat. So I will definitely make sure I always have a female's fat set at 40%, always. And then if it's a male, I will generally start their fat at 40% as well. But I don't generally take it above that because um, we don't just generally don't need that much more than that. So that entire experience was 100% like, percent a learning experience that, wow, like nutrition makes an enormous difference in how I feel almost immediately. It can either just completely wreck me or I feel superhuman. But it is it is a manipulable variable that does make a big difference. So yeah, no, I, that was a huge that was a huge learning curve for me. Yeah, and when you talk about fat, what are the best ways individuals can get fat into their diet? So this is it's a great question. I, so fats are really when I'm looking at a new a new client, I will usually order stool, hair, and blood, and I use I like to do genetic panel if I can get one. So the reason why is when you start looking into fat types. The total fat for most people isn't really going to matter. The fat type does matter. So if you have someone like my genetics, where if you looked at my genetic report, I have every gene for obesity, diabetes, heart disease, including lower metabolic rate, lower fat metabolism, fatty, you know, fatty liver, like my PMT gene, I have that. So I have like everything that you could do to like, you won't do well with fat and you're going to have high cholesterol and you're going to have heart disease. I mean, my mom died of a heart attack. My brother died of a heart attack. My dad has had a heart attack. So it's like heart disease is there. So when you, and then, and when I, when I did the research in this, I found this because it's largely because I have the APOE gene variants. I'm an I'm APO3-4, which means I have a 90% likelihood of getting Alzheimer's if I had a standard American diet and I don't change my lifestyle. I'm not worried about it at all because I don't have any of those issues. And that's when you're talking about genetics. Remember the expression lifestyle loads the gun, right? Or genetics loads the gun, lifestyle pulls the trigger. So with someone has an APOE gene variant like myself, like my wife, like a lot of clients I see, if you put that person on too much saturated fat, you will see really bad lipids really fast. Like mine, when I did ketogenic diet, went from my cholesterol is usually 140 to 160. I have very low cholesterol. It went to 400 in the first three weeks. And the only reason I know that is because I had to do a life insurance exam in the interim. I always do my labs before and after any dietary approach. I just didn't do them in the middle because I wasn't planning on it. And that was when I was like, what is going on? And why are my liver enzymes going through the roof? And why is my stomach hurting all the time? And why am I super nauseous? Why is my cholesterol freaking out? You're like, and I also pull, when you're looking at cholesterol, I don't just pull cholesterol panels. I pull what's called an MMR lymphic profile. So that looks at particle size. You break apart the HDL, the LDL. You get to see how big it is, how buoyant it is. And what I was noticing is 
my particle size sucks and I have a lot of the small particle, which is not what you want. And I have a lot of it. So when you're looking at cholesterol, what people get kind of confused is you have large buoyant cholesterol and then you have small dense LDL lipid cholesterol. And the thing that the analogy they use for this is imagine there's a tennis net. Well, if you have the large buoyant kind of like cotton candy, it can't move through the net. It can't form a clot. It can't travel and it can't hurt you. But small ones can because they can travel through the net and they can start making clots and they can break free. That's how you get strokes, that's how you get heart disease. So APOE, you have to be really careful with that. So with me, I generally use a lot more plant-based fats because I, I actually, when I was vegan, did very well vegan, but I don't think I should be fully vegan. I think there's definitely some long-term problems with that. I did it for five years and then definitely started to develop some issues. But I think um, when it comes to that, I do so, great on really plant-based fats and unsaturated fats. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, just to recap. So for the people listening, AP, APO, APOE gene, yep. um, what percent of people have this? Do you know? That's a good question. Yeah. Well, so you have, we have the gene, but then you have the alleles. Okay. So the alleles are what you get from each parent, right? So that's how you get the numbering system. So it can be like one, 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 two, 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 three, three, four, four. Like you get four, four, like you're like, that's Alzheimer's. And if you get three, four, they're like, that's pretty high. And then if you get two, four, they're like, eh, it's probably not that much. If you're like one, two, they're like, whatever. So you're getting an allele from each parent and then you have a combination. Okay. And so when you're looking at APOE, what I've actually done on this and, it, and the way you can hack this, which I, which I recommend is if you go to 23andMe, what you'll do is you'll pull your ancestry, not your health data because their health reports suck. But if you pull their ancestry data, then what you do is you'll get that raw data back and that's your genome. Then what you can do is you go to Rhonda Patrick's site, which is, to, which is found my fitness. So go to foundmyfitness.com. And then she has an option in there where you can upload your genetic report and it links with 23andMe. I think it's like $35. And then you can get all the health and nutrient reports. Like, do you convert ALA, which is a plant-based fat, to EPA and DHA? Can you do that? Not a lot of people can. I actually can. Not a lot of people can. And that's one of the reasons why when veganism, they're like, why eat flax seeds? They're like, but you'll never get EPA and DHA from that because you can't convert ALA to that. Most people suck at that, like really badly. I'm really good at it. But you'll see on there, do you have the OPOG? Do you have the PEMT gene? Like I have a gallbladder issues. And it, and it has a really good explanation of like, here's this gene and here's what it means. Now, remember, don't take some of the genetic stuff because it is in huge infancy right now and with any kind of certainty. Just be like, okay, because you'll look at them and you'll look at them. I looked up one. It was like, in a study of 138 people, I was like, delete. I don't care. That's not a big enough sample. That, that, that's not relevant. So when you get into some of this genetic stuff, it's like, just remember that. It's not right. diagnostic at all. Okay. It is presumptive. And it's just saying you have predispositions, but it doesn't mean you're guaranteed to get it. And I just like the 23andMe because from there, when you send it to Rhonda's site, you get really good detailed information about your fats that you do well with. Like it'll say on there, this person doesn't do well with a lot of saturated fat, or this person will do well with more polyunsaturated fats. That's from whole fats, not oils. But you know, I mean, so it'll tell you kind of how you respond to that. And that's usually if I can if I can have my preference, that's how I set up someone's entire program. Is that based off what the genetics say? So I can kind of tweak the, the diet a little bit pull the hair in. I can see exactly what I need to do nutritionally blood. I can see lots of different deficiencies that I can work on. And then stool, obviously with stool, I can see gut infections. I can see microbial balances. I can see, um, you know, does the liver pancreas and gallbladder help. So there you can really get detailed with people. And so I, I really think, I know it's a lot of work, but if hmm. people are really concerned, that, that's really how you get detailed with nutrition and really customize it to you. Cause there's just so much bad information online every single day. It's just, it's just really infuriating. <laughs> Yeah, that is, that is true. And, um, <clears throat> I've actually done 23 and me a while back. I'll have to pull that up and find nice. it. 
Um, so regarding like macros, you talk about mm-hmm. carbs, fat, and protein, and obviously you're, uh, you realize that you needed to up your, your set, your, well, I shouldn't say saturated fat, but your well, should, mm-hmm. should I say saturated fat? Was that, I did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Cause saturated fat is important. And it right. is important for testosterone. It's like anything. If once you study more of the health world, you're going to see people take snippets of things and they throw that quote out there, but they leave the rest of it off. Like they're like, insulin is fat storage hormone, but it, which they should finish the sentence and say only when you're a surplus. If you're not a surplus, insulin doesn't get anything. Like I have rail thin type one diabetics who inject tons of insulin a day, why are they not gaining weight? So once you understand this stuff, like it really makes a lot more sense. But yeah, it, it's just the bad information. And, and what I would say is, I need you definitely in saturated fat. What I usually will do if I don't know someone's genetic background is I just break it apart pretty evenly. I'm like, third of it's going to come from poly, third of it's going to come from saturated, and third of it's going to come from unsaturated. But I don't use seed oils, and I don't use generally oils in general other than olive oil. That's really, and it's extra virgin. Other than that, I don't use in coconut oil. I don't use really any oils in general because they're really hard on the gallbladder. Um, I just prefer people get their, their fats from their foods, right? So if we're eating eggs, right? So we get some choline, which everybody needs. And if you have the PEMTG, like I do, I need tons of choline because that's how you get fatty liver. So um, choline is actually B vitamin that pulls fat out of the liver and puts it in the bloodstream. So that's why when people are choline deficient or more prone to choline deficiency, you can see higher levels of fatty liver. And when I did keto, I got fatty liver. So again, certain people will not do well on high fat diets at all. Um, and there's ways to tweak that. But again, if you just kind of mix your fats up between each source, I, I personally think that's the best way, especially if you don't know where you really fall, which at the end of the day, it's not that I can't have saturated fat as an APOE variant. It just means I sh- it shouldn't be my predominant nutrient. I shouldn't eat tons of it, like put coconut oil, like as you know, in my coffee and in my cereal, like everywhere, like people do, like, <laughs> don't do that and you'll right. be fine. Right. Okay. And then regarding, um, protein, curious mm-hmm. your thoughts regarding protein, do you try to, um, like, depending on your client, do you try to say, okay, let, let's start with animal proteins if they're open to that, obviously, and, mm-hmm. and see how you are with that. Or like, obviously the bioavailability and things like that of, let's just say an animal protein for the most part is probably higher than most uh, plant proteins. So what are for your sure. thoughts regarding proteins and, and how someone should implement? It's a really good question. So when you understand this concept, you'll understand, unfortunately, why veganism isn't great. And you'll actually understand why you actually don't need that much animal protein. So there's a concept called the leucine, leucine threshold. And every meal, so let's back up a second. When you're trying to build muscle and lose fat, you're trying to emphasize or, or spike muscle protein synthesis. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to delay muscle protein breakdown, which is why you should never work out fasted because there's nothing to buffer muscle protein breakdown. You're just going to start losing muscle mass. And that's why you see shitty nitrogen balances when people work out fasted. So I'd never do that. You're going to pour performances oh, no. in the tank. Oh, like, no. I'm in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> I used to train fasted all the time. And once right. I started eating, my performance improved dramatically. So I would never train fasted again, unless I had to that day. I mean, I'm not going to skip training. Like, right. it's more important to train than to right. skip it. You know what I mean? Like, so if that's the only way you can train, the most important thing is that you train. Mm. Like, let's, let's be clear on that first. <laughs> um, but when it comes to protein, You've got the leucine threshold, which you only need about three grams of leucine per meal to spike the leucine threshold, which usually comes out to about 20 grams of animal protein, about four or five ounces. So the way my personal diet is set up, if you look at all the studies on protein, and if you look at muscle protein synthesis, muscle protein breakdown, and the ability to build muscle, protein to build, to build muscle as a natural training, these are not performance ants, there's no substances here. These are just people who are naturally training. If you look at this, 
0.82 grams per pound of body weight is what comes up repeatedly in the research is the max ability of a natural trainee to actually absorb and use protein very well. So I generally set everyone's protein at 0.8 grams per pound of body weight, right? So for me, it's about 160, 170. So, and then if you look at the studies on protein quality, once the lutein threshold has been hit, which is that 20 grams, um, if you look at all the studies on muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein quality, they, they assume that 50% of that person's dietary protein is animal. The other 50% they don't care about. It's like the mixture of all the other foods they eat. So that when people are like, well, I need 200 grams of protein a day exclusively from meat. No, you don't. You need 200 grams of protein a day. And at least 100 grams need to come from animals. So I always set it up where people are like, and then you see this with women because they're like, I just can't get my protein that high. Like, cool. What we're going to start with now is we're going to start as little animal protein as you can get in. I'm going to raise it and I'll make up the difference with some other proteins that you will eat because the most important thing is get the protein in. So when I'm working with a new client, I always interview them first to see where they're at and see what help they need in their nutrition journey. Like, what's their knowledge? Are you tracking it? Do you know what macros are? Like, do you need a food list? Do you need a menu plan? Like, where do I need to start you? And then obviously where their goal is. And then I just work on slow behavior changes every week and implementation changes I can make in that person's program to get them to where I need them to go. And I always start with protein and I always start with having them first manage their total calories. And that's how you can get someone who really doesn't know a lot about nutrition to see a see progress right away. Because if I can control their calories, they will lose weight right away. And if I keep their protein up high enough, they will lose fat and they will gain muscle right away. And if I just can be consistent, we'll see progress. So I start there and then I kind of start circling back and I start pulling on the junk other diet and I start putting it's like, it's just a slow change to get them out of the woods. Because if you, if you're like day one, you're eating standard American tomorrow, you're eating nose to tail, you know, all that. They're like, what? Like, they, I don't know what any of that is. Mm-hmm. So you have to go very slow, but I always start with protein. I get them to their goal first. I make sure they're eating enough healthy fats. It's like, once I get enough nutrients in, like say protein, then I'll circle and I'm like, all right, where's their fat? What kind of fats are these coming from? And I'm like, let's pull this guy out. Do you like this type of fat? Let's swap him in. Or do you like nuts? Or do you like this? Do you like eggs? Like, let's swap this in. You know what I mean? So then I'll start getting in like, and I'm, I'm a huge fan of fish oil. If you look at all the studies on fish oil, it's great. Just depends on where the fish oil comes from because it can be problematic if it's a crappy source because then it's going to oxidize and you know, kinds of DNA damage. So we'll use, I try to get them to eat fish first. And if they won't, I'll supplement with fish oil. But it's always protein first. It's always total calories. And then I manage it from there. Yeah. And you mentioned total calories. I was actually on your website earlier today and I, you, you wrote a blog, I think in two years ago. So regarding that, you're not a big fan of counting calories. Mm-hmm. So is this something that you just figure out right away? And then sort of like, cause I'm not either. I, I've actually just recently started to track my calories. Cause I just was curious to see how many calories I was mm-hmm. e- eating, but what are your thoughts mm-hmm. regarding that? Yeah. So in terms of, so I teach people two ways. Right. So I teach them tracking and non-tracking. Right. Most people don't like to track. Here's the expert. Here's what I, here's exactly what I tell people when they work with them. Like, we need to make a deficit somehow so you can lose weight. Okay. We can either track that deficit where we know what you're eating and you're going to have a lot more flexibility in your food choices. And by controlling the deficit, I can get you, I can, I can routinely probably map out much better how long it's going to take them to get there and be more consistent in their progress. So it's going to be faster. I said, if you don't want to track, that's fine. Then I'm going to teach you to eat in a way that controls your calories, which is usually going to be a low carb or plan because that's just why that's easy, right? If I can be like, I'm going to fill you up on protein. I'm going to fill you up on fruits and vegetables first. They don't have appetite for anything else. What happens to their calories? They plummet. What happens? They lose a ton of weight. So if someone's like, I hate tracking. I'm not going to do it. I'm like, then I need you to eat this way or use a food list. And these foods that we're going to exclude. And the only reason we're going to exclude them is they're high calories. And if you're not tracking it, you're going to go way over your budget because you don't understand how to put them in yet. 
So I'll do one of either. And that's why I write, I, I try to write education content on either one of those based off how people want to go. I personally track my calories and I have for 25 years. I think it's incredibly easy. I think it's the easiest thing to do, but that's also because I've done it forever. And, and I also know every food. Right. And you're probably eating the same stuff. <laughs> exactly. It's like, I, it's like almost like these CGMs. I, I, I've gotten them on and off, but like I eat the same stuff. And the other thing, also other thing with CGMs, uh, continuous glucose monitors is like you're, I, I find that I'm, I'm mixing foods. What, what are your, what are your yeah. thoughts around mixing foods and how they can affect you and, and then eating foods like, you know, one at a time. And so I think that's a great question because the glycemic index is a useless measurement on any scale whatsoever, unless you're eating a food by itself. Right. Someone's like glycemic index of rice. Who cares? No one eats rice by itself. If you can store the glycemic index of anything with protein, fiber, and fat. That's why if you look at the glycemic index of peanut butter and M's, they're really low. Right. It's like if you look at a I banana, it's like 90. <laughs> so it's like, why is it so much lower? It has nothing to do with junk food. It has to do with the speed. It rises glucose, right? So when you're looking at those pieces, I don't know. I, the way that I really see a lot of it when it comes to this is it's, it's super, super, super individual is really what it boils down. And you're probably going to feel a lot of these things. Like when I first started yes. going to keto, I was like, I don't feel very good. And why am I nauseous all the time? And why don't, why does my side hurt? Like, these are things that like six weeks in, understand the approach you choose is simply based off something you feel like resonates with you and you can stick to it. And when you do, you're going to see success. And that's why people are like, this is the only diet that's ever worked for me. I'm like, it's the only one that ever really, that really either resonated with you or you could follow. That's why it works. So with keto, keto is one of the best diets to control appetite. If someone's like, my appetite's crazy. I'm like, I will stick in a keto diet. You'll never be hungry. And it's like, so you just, you kind of learn how people respond, but some of these things are, are changed. You know what I mean? Like they're temporary. I might use like a carnivore diet for a while. Somebody's got super, super bad GI problems. I got to get under control really quickly. I would never use carnivore otherwise, but I'll use it temporarily as a great elimination diet and they'll generally improve. And then as we fix their gut health, they can eat these other foods to become problematic. And it's like, I explained to them when they're like, oh, I fixed my gut health from carnivore. I'm like, let's actually look, see what's happened here. So that's kind of like saying, when I squat, my knee hurts. I stopped squatting. I fixed my knee. No, you didn't. You removed the stimulus. So when, you, when people are like, I'm not eating fiber anymore. Fiber is bad. I'm like, actually, a lot of the research on fiber is not bad, especially long-term, especially when you want to start looking at appropriate production in the gut, like and butyrate, like anti-cancer. Like, actually, fiber is really important. So before people just kind of throw everything out, understand sometimes things that you heal on and approach will not be the approach you live on. And that's something that's really important to understand because everybody's a little bit different. Yeah. It's interesting because before I, I don't eat a lot of fruit. I've just never been, I, I used to eat more and I've just gotten away from it a little bit, maybe because of all the interviews I've done and, you know, fructose this and, sure. but, but I will say a lot of people that are anti-fructose, um, say that you're much better off obviously eating an apple than taking that apple mm -hmm. and putting it in a smoothie and, you sure. know, chopping it up and, and, and drinking it. So, um, but it was interesting before we went on the interview, I, 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 had, I, don't, I had an apple and I'm like, oh, I wish I had my CGM just to see. <laughs> but like you said, I actually can feel, I can feel how foods affect me. Like that's, I think that's what in, in getting into my next sort of topic, I wanted to talk a little bit about fasting is, um, you know, I do, I've been doing fasting on and off for a while now, but I think that sort of helps me sort of get in tune with how foods are affecting me. Um, and I'm just curious how do you, how with yourself and with your clients do, do you implement any type of fasting? 
It's a good question. So I think first, if you look at the fasting research, because I have studied this extensively, most of it's on rats. And unless you're a rat whose lifespan is two years, understand a rat not eating for a week or a day is like human not eating or but vice versa. It's a rat not eating for a day is like the human not eating for a month. So remember that. Okay. Right, right. So when we do those things, that we don't see the benefits in human. And actually this study was just released. I actually just posted on my Facebook page. And what they did, it was on intermittent fasting and they compared it as a weight loss tool. And so they said, this new study goes to the growing evidence that intermittent fasting does not have any meaningful health or fat loss benefits independent of calorie restriction. This is Lou et al. had 139 individuals follow a calorie restricted plan for a year with or without the eight hour eating window, zero difference in insulin sensitivity, metabolic risk factors or weight loss. So what I use, what I tell people is this, fasting is just another tool to help you control your intake and it can work very well. Now, there are some obviously true benefits to longer term fasting as a water fasting, that type of stuff. And I, and I do practice a little bit of intermittent fasting myself because I get up at four every day. Mm-hmm. And if I ate at 4.30, I'd be out of calories by noon. <laughs> so I don't try and eat breakfast till eight or nine just to conserve my calories throughout the day. Right. So I, will, I, I like to do a hard cutoff around 7 p.m. for most people. And again, remember, this is a tool because if I can cut them earlier, they're not drinking at night. They're not sitting in front of food, eating food all night. And this is why people look at all this weight. I've lost them in fasting. I'm like, look at all the changes you made in your behavior. That's awesome. Great job. But understand why it works. So I think fasting in that standard is really good. And I think it depends on the person. If someone's a rule follower like me, I can be like, all right, Brian, you can only eat from like eight to six. They're like, okay. And no, they won't eat from like 801. They're like, okay. And 459, they're done. Like, that's it. But you get other people and they don't like those restrictions and it's going to cause. So nutrition is very psychological, very psychological. Um, but I do like fasting. I do like putting in the hard stop eating window for sure. And if someone wants to do it in fasting, I have no problem with it, but I coach them on, all right, you know, remember hunger. This is what's really important to understand about fasting and circadian rhythms and chronotype, which is really interesting. So for example, people are like, Oh, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. It is. If you eat breakfast, routinely. If you don't eat breakfast, it doesn't matter at all. But if you eat breakfast all the time, it's very important. This is where chronotype is really interesting. And you see research on this. If you take someone who's a breakfast eater and you stick them in an intermittent fasting program, the person's going to struggle and do horrible because that person's used to eating breakfast. What's that mean? It means their hunger hormone. So leptin is a day-to-day and ghrelin's more hour-to-hour in terms of your hunger hormone spiking. So what actually happens is if you're always eating at eight, your hunger hormones always spike around six to seven to be like, hey, it's time to start eating. It's time to start getting hungry. It just reminds you to eat. They spike at a certain time. Well, what happens that first day you don't eat breakfast till noon and you're used to eating it at eight? You're going to be so hungry. You're probably going to eat at noon. So when I use fasting, I ask someone, are you a breakfast eater or not? That's like, no, I hate breakfast. I'm like, Intermittent fasting be perfect for you. This is going to be awesome. Like, don't eat till noon. Like, awesome. I don't do that anyway. I'm like, great. Mm-hmm. And I make him have a really tiny lunch. I'm like, you'd have an enormous dinner. And I can, I can have such good compliance to that person. It's unbelievable. But yeah, if you stick somebody like me on a fasting program, I'll quit by the first day. So it, fasting really depends on if someone's a breakfast eater or not and their appetite. Okay. And the, the, the approach I use on people to manage their intake is what they're struggling with. My diet is set up based off my struggles. So I generally, I start at four with clients. I start at five with clients. I go to four, but I usually go straight, straight from like five to noon. I don't even have any breaks. So I generally will have like something very small in the morning. Like it's usually like, I actually get like those Applegate farm, like meat packets. Just tear it open. Eat like that in my office. I eat an apple. It's my breakfast. 
And so that usually gets me through to lunch. And I come home, then I actually cook a meal. And it's usually a big vegetable stir fry. It's usually some fish or some kind of meat, a bunch of fruit, nuts and seeds, that type of stuff, and some green tea. That's usually my lunch. And then I'll take my binders and all my stuff in the afternoon, and I'll pause, and I'll eat. My dinner is where I usually will struggle and overeat. So I go in dinner. I've got almost 1,800 calories left in my dinner because I kind of pulse my day and go real slow. So this huge surplus at night that I can't overeat. And one of my struggles for years, I would overeat at dinner because I'd be too hungry. So now when I backload my calories and my carbohydrates based off several studies, mm-hmm. I keep them there at dinner and you're going to see greater compliance in your people. And the reason I bring the starches to dinner is because you increase starch, you increase serotonin, people sleep better. And if you look at compliance studies, if you give people carbs at dinner, they stick their program so much better. So if I've got someone who wants to intermittent fast, I'm like, cool, don't eat anything until lunch, have protein, fruits, and vegetables. And at dinner, we're going to have some fun and I'll make you a bigger dinner. And they're like, awesome. And they can only eat twice a day. And I can get people to drop like stones like that because their calorie deficits are huge and they're sticking to their plan. It's very easy. So I think fasting is a great tool to control your intake. It's usually what it's beneficial for. Yeah. And some great points there. I, you know, I'm a big fan too of picking a time to cut off. You know, let's just say, like you said, seven o'clock. Because a lot of times, late, like you said, late night eating or drinking just can cause issues, right? Obviously. Mm-hmm. And then it could get into sleep and things like that. Mm-hmm. Also, um, I like how you mentioned to backload carbs. That's something that I've always done. Not always, actually. I used to. I, I used to not do that. Now, I if I have something midday, I'll have mainly protein and fats, and then for dinner, I'll implement some more carbs. Um, so I, I like that. As far as um, fruit and carbs and things like that. So, do you typically like what to say? You're going to have a dessert. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, do you just say okay, fruit? Because fruit is pretty much like a dessert for the most part. Yeah. It probably depends on which one, but. Um, how do you go about handling that? That's pretty much it. I don't, I don't really eat. So the way I coach clients eat is, you know, 89% of the time we're eating whole non-processed foods. And that includes, like I said, like no oils either. Like that's just whole foods. Right. And I tell them, depending on their goal, 10 to 20% of the time, eat whatever the hell you want. Just keep it in your window. And it works very well. And people stay really compliant. The labs are great. Like everything's happening. So when it comes to desserts, I don't actually veer off from like clean foods, not for any other reason other than I just don't feel good if I don't eat them. You know what I mean? If I were to eat like cake or a junk food, like I just don't physically feel well. Right. So I, I just wouldn't eat it, right? So for me, a dessert is fruit, you know, um, or it's like a, like a big bowl of quinoa and fruit. Like that's one of my favorite things in the world. I'll eat that a lot of times after my dinner. Um, right, again, I, I do my cutoff at seven for a few reasons, but I think if you're into the fasting research, one of the things that did give me pause about really late night eating, and this is more like when it's dark, this is from Sacha Panda's work on time-restricted feeding is they found that in the pancreas where insulin is produced, you also have melatonin receptors. And so at night, when you're eating a bunch of carbohydrates, you won't be making enough insulin to drive the glucose down because as melatonin is produced, it lessens insulin production, actually making you insulin resistant. So there, there's a new phrase now, nighttime diabetes, right? You can be normal in the morning, but you could have elevated glucose at night. So if someone eats like a huge thing of carbohydrates before bed, like really late at night, and that glucose is hanging up all night, well, I mean, that's inflammatory all night, right? And then we run into reflux issues and all kinds of other issues. So the whole point being is like, I like the, um, I like to eat more just clean, like non-processed foods because I feel better. But yeah, if I was going to have dessert, yeah, I'd totally eat fruit or something. I probably, I think when you're looking at, when you look at fructose, it's another one of those things where the conversation isn't finished. They're talking about, there's an enormous difference between fructose and high fructose corn syrup, especially like molecularly. It's not even the same damn thing. That's like saying the gas in your car is the same thing as gas in your gut. It's not, it's not even close. Mm-hmm. So when people are like 20 milligrams of fructose, like don't go above that. I'm like, 
okay, look at the rat studies. And what they were doing is they were giving, when they, especially if they're looking at soda, when they're looking at high fructose curbs and soda, they were giving rats 200 cans of soda a day. So don't drink 200 cans of soda a day and you'll probably be fine. Like <laughs> it's everything is the dose is the poison. And we make people obsessive and worry about foods, which drive restrictive eating behavior and binge problems. And it gives people eating disorders. And when people just understand if you ate well most of the time, and if you slept well, and if you exercised, and you got sun, and you got fresh air, and you managed your stress a lot, and you manage your calories, a lot of what you eat isn't that important. Don't, don't misunderstand me so you can live on McDonald's. But a lot of what you eat, especially <laughs> eating well, a little bit of treats here and there are not going to hurt you. They're just not. But living in that state will. So yeah, once we get people sleeping better, recovering better, and just ease their mindset and be like, I need you to control your calories. Don't think about this food as being perfect. Because that's what people do. Like at a nutritional analysis day, I always ask, how did it go? Oh, this week is terrible. I'm like, all right, why was the week terrible? I'll look like the food journal. I always look at protein. I look at total calories first. If they control them, I'm like, what was bad about the week? Well, I had this one cookie. I'm like, okay. So is the one cookie? So then you have to have the, the conversation is, okay, you did your workouts this week, right? You're like, yeah. I said, how was Monday's workout? I was like, awesome. After Monday's workout, did you hit your target body weight goal or your body fat goal on the measurement? No, why? I'm like, well, then the cookie's not going to screw you up either. Calm down. It's one cookie. Just like it's one workout. Okay, calm down. Right. So is, the more we can get people to relax about this, the more people will stop looking for all these answers, thinking like what I'm not doing is the reason why I don't look like I want. When in the end, they're just not using their calories or they're sleeping like shit and they don't exercise and they're doing all these other things to try and make up for all these things that they're not doing. What is your calorie intake? Uh, just at a baseline, like, what are you looking for day to day? If I'm maintaining, usually I can easily pretty maintain on between usually 33,000 to 3,200 is typically what I maintain on. And I'm cutting right now. And you're six it's summer. I mean, I'm sorry. You're five. You're shorter, five, six. right? Five, yeah, six, five, six. And what, what's your weight? So right now this morning I was 197. Yeah. Cause you're a big, like anyone watching <laughs> this will be on YouTube. You know, you're big, you're strong. I mean, do, what's your, have you done like a DEXA scan? Like, do you know where you're at with that? I think, oh, no, I don't, yeah, okay. no, I don't do DEXA just because I just have access to it, but I'll do in body and stuff like that. I have an in body in my studio. Um, it was like, I think it said I was like 11, eight in body fat this morning. Yeah. I'm usually around 12 to 13. That's kind of where I hover, unless okay. I'm cutting. I'm not, I'm not a very genetically lean person all the time. So for me to stay really lean is pretty difficult all the time, but I am cutting for an event this summer. So right now I'm currently eating about 25 to 2,700 calories a day. Yeah. I get a lot of steps. So for me, I get 20,000 plus steps every day. So I know my metrics. Like if I eat around 25 to 2,700 calories, I lift six days a week. And if I walk between 15, 20,000 steps a day, I'll, I'll look exactly how I want. So I know the metrics and those are things I work on with clients as well. Steps, sleep, calories, like all these different metrics, right? So they can have these things to monitor versus just like, well, I did my workout today or I ate perfect today. I'm like, great. That's like 40%. What did you do with the rest of the day? So once we kind of educate people on that, it's really about the entire picture. Yeah. It's interesting you bring up walking. I think it's like one of these things that is such a, I don't want to say like simple thing to do, but makes such a big impact, right? Okay. I love walking. It's one of my favorite things. Do you have dogs? Yeah, I do. Okay. I was going to say, cause you're walking that many steps. I hope you got dogs. Well, so, I mean, I get about a thousand steps an hour training a client. Yeah. I've, I've kind of documented all over. So if I'm training 10 or 12 people a day, like I said, I'll have, I usually have 10 or 12,000 steps before noon. So then it's like, by the time I come home and get some stuff done, my wife, we, I usually go for about an hour walk after dinner. I'll usually hit 20, 25,000 steps pretty easily. Most on the weekends, I'll hit 30 just because I'm super active. So yeah. for me, again, my calorie needs are higher. My, my activity level is super high. My muscle mass is higher. I train a ton. 
and my food quality is very high. That allows me to eat more. So this is how it gets really individual. Right. Yeah. And, um, uh, wow, a lot of good stuff here. We'll, we'll end on, I know we're at a hard stop soon. Um, Let's let me ask you the fast for your workouts. You work out typically in the afternoon or the mornings, or I like to do mornings. And so you you're not in a fast state during those workouts. So no, but this is a good question. You don't actually need that much pre-workout. Okay. So again, you know, all you do is spike the leucine threshold, it's 20 grams of protein. So what I do is I take one scoop of protein before I work out. That's it. Oh, I'm sorry. My pre-workout is not true. My pre-workout has carbs in it as well. Um, what I tell my clients is take one scoop of protein powder before you work out. You won't, you will, you will buffer muscle protein breakdown and you'll be fine. That's all you need. So it, it doesn't have to be a huge meal. Like it just needs to be 20 grams of protein. So mine is actually, I'll do uh, 20 grams of protein, but I do 60 grams of carbohydrates in mine. And then I'll do a little bit of caffeine and then I'll take my creatine afterwards because creatine and, and the caffeine do not mix well together. Um, creatine actually is prevented absorption because of caffeine. Say that one more time. The creatine. So, yeah, so caffeine prevents absorption of creatine, increases oh. excretion. So it's kind of dumb that they put them together in pre-workout powders. So I'll take my caffeine pre-workout and I'll take my or my creatine post-workout. Gotcha. Say, do you just use plain caffeine or do you mix or is it? Uh... Like, um, I have just a, uh, like a, a pre-workout that I use. Um, it's like by, it's called by pure performance. It's like Mark Wahlberg's company. I just like it just because one, it tastes good, but it's green tea extract. And when you understand like where green tea comes from versus the coffee bean versus green tea, green tea has less crashes. So that's why any caffeine I use is green tea based. But if I drink coffee, oh my God, I like plummet. <laughs> like I'm like the worst person in the world when I just crash off coffee. Yeah, I hear you. I, I I feel like the same way. I do you have like a cold brew. I don't like warm coffee. I'll do a cold brew every once in a while. And that stuff will just get you. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that'll just too much. Get you. Yeah, it's too much. Yeah. I know I have to be. That's careful. too much for me. <laughs> well, and uh, on the on the note on caffeine, yeah, the, the studies show it's 100 milligrams. Is when you're routinely going over 100 milligrams, you'll develop a caffeine dependency. So right. if you can keep it 100 or less, you can kind of then pull some of those higher caffeine days when you need it. Okay, and, and you know, I know, I know, I've talked about this before, but like the anabolic window after a workout. Mm -hmm this is something I think in the past and probably these protein supplement companies wanted you to think that you needed to just chug a shake right after you worked out. But I believe the window is like almost like a two, eight, two day window of, of, uh, taking advantage of, of, you know, like a muscle protein synthesis, synthesis and, mm -hmm. and, and getting, um, you know, getting the full benefit of that workout. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. So, um, you're correct. Actually the anabolic window for non-trained individual is three days. An anabolic window for a trained individual is 24 hours. Mm -hmm. So and it's at least 24 hours. So the way that I structure nutrition is I'll do, I actually put all the calories and protein after the workout because that's technically when the anabolic window starts. So what I'll do for people is like, if it's a, you know, just a fasted morning client or something, like take one scoop before you work out, it's fine. Go to your workout. And within an hour or two, doesn't mean you have to run out of the gym, but you know, your next meal makes, that's when their protein starts. And that's actually where, what I'll do with protein is, if I have someone, let's say it's a woman, it's hundred grams a day. I'll actually put 25 at breakfast, 25 at lunch. And I will put a huge amount of protein at dinner. And I will put a huge amount of carbohydrates at dinner. Cause again, you make that person full, you can make them sleepy. They go to bed. And if they're full, you keep them full. They don't eat all night. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of, but also I'm backloading their calories in the, in kind of the peak of the anabolic window and the way I kind of will do nutrition. If you want to do this advanced, you can, it, it doesn't, I don't think it really matters, but it's kind of whatever <laughs> on paper, it looks good. As if it's a three-day window, you could actually backload all of their calories in that next three anabolic window days if it's a non-training individual. So I'll teach me Monday, 
Well, the anabolic windows are going to last till Thursday. So you could have all of your calories, even if dispersed in those windows. Um, and then what I'll usually do is on an off day, I'll have them do what's called a protein spraying modified fast. I pull all their calories down really, really low and I keep it. So I'll keep it to whatever their protein is. So if it's a hundred grams a day, they get a thousand calories and they have to eat a hundred grams of protein a day. So I'll pull calories way down. I just have people usually do like one to two dieting days a week and it works awesome. Gotcha. Yeah. I, as you can tell, a lot of different customization. What would you say, this is a question I ask a lot of uh, my guests. If you have an individual middle-aged, um, let's say 50 years and older, and they are looking to get their body back to, to what it once was back when they were in their 20s and 30s, what one tip would you give that individual? Even though you've given a lot of great tips this whole hour, sure, yeah. <laughs> maybe pick one. Well, male or female? Because it's different. Male. Say male. If it's male, I'd be able to get your testosterone levels checked and get on TRT because your life will change. That's the first thing I would say. And then I would say, make sure you sleep. I mean, that's what, everyone, what I tell everyone, regardless of your sex, regardless where you're at, the first thing we have to do, you have to sleep. If you're not sleeping, I will put so many sleep studies in front of them. It's ridiculous. And the first thing I'll tell them is like, anything that's considered poor sleep, which is less than six hours, is the next day, you'll see a 25% reduction in your testosterone. You're going to see a 20% increase in your appetite. You're going to see a 10% decrease in thyroid function one day. And what so was the last thing you said? I'm sorry, you said. You'll see a 10, you'll see a 10% decrease in thyroid function okay. in the first day. So one day, okay, so this is crazy. So then think about what if over the course of the week, you only slept. So you need, let's back up a second. Full sleep cycle is eight hours and 15 minutes. A sleep cycle is 90 minutes. Most people need between four to seven when they sleep. Your first half of the night is deep sleep. The second half is REM sleep. REM sleep is pretty much paralyzing. Deep sleep is not, which is why you can wake up all the time before like one or two. But generally, you won't wake up much longer after that. So when you're looking at sleep, what will happen is that's where everything happens in terms of hormonal reproduction, immune health regeneration, tissue regeneration, recovery, everything happens when you sleep. And so if you are sleeping, say, just six hours a night, over, which is probably pretty average. Most people, when I, the first thing I said, how many hours a night do you sleep? I'm like seven to eight. I'm like, how much do you really sleep? They're like five to six. I'm like, that's what I thought. So <laughs> if you're looking at six hours a night, right? Versus eight. So if you're only sleeping six hours, right? Seven days a week. So that's 14 hours you missed this week. That's almost two full days of sleep. And it does carry over to the next week in terms of the sleep debt. And it just keeps building. And so sleep is a huge issue. And so I make sure everyone that we work on, if I can't get them sleeping, I then run lab tests and I find out why they're not sleeping and I get them sleeping. And we do not use sleeping pills at all, ever. Um, what we'll use is usually like magnesium, use a little bit of GABA. Most people, that will really wind them down. If it's a woman, especially going to menopause, progesterone is helpful. And if it's a man, testosterone generally helps them sleep really, really well, especially if their dose isn't too high. It's very calming, especially when you're using replacement values, like low dose, not super physiological. Um, everything improves. So that's why I say, if we get you sleeping, a lot of times everything improves. And I don't care how great you are with your diet and how great your supplements and you're training your ass off. If you're sleeping three hours a night, you're not going to make any progress. You're probably going to go back and you're going to definitely see some problems. So I would definitely say the most important thing, fix your sleep. Love that. Good note to end on. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Well, Matt, thanks for dropping so much knowledge on us. Uh, where's the best place for people to find you? Um, easiest way to find me is you just find me at my website, which is my name. So Matt Terry, and then the word fitness, mattterryfitness.com. They can find me there. Awesome. Okay. Well, Matt, thanks again for coming on and um, dropping all this great knowledge. And um, yeah, check out, check it out at his website. And uh, you could definitely reach out for a call and, and, um, and a consultation. So yeah. thanks, man. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. You're welcome. 
Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine, and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.